We are uh, continuing in our time um, of worship, and we've got to come back to our time of worship here as we look uh, to the scriptures. Turn to Job chapter 2. We'll be looking at the final few verses of the book of Job, and it is Communion Sunday. We have a lot going on, uh, obviously, uh, but uh, because it's Communion Sunday, we will be, um, we'll be looking at just a, a few verses that will finish off this, uh, this narrative portion uh, I, I think I've, I keep saying that, that we're going to finish off this narrative portion, but we are. And then we're going to enter into a, a period of uh, the book of Job that is poetic dialogue and then poetic monologue. As I mentioned before, um, when we think about the book of Job, almost everything we think about in terms of Job's life and the circumstances of his suffering, like the story of Job, we know in just the first two chapters and maybe in chapter 42 or chapter 46 when God restores him. That's about the fullness of our understanding of what happens in the book of Job. So the question is, why is there 46 chapters? And it's because the, the vast majority of the book of Job is really about a dialogue, about thinking through um, suffering and difficulties in this life, and the God who is righteous and good, both righteous and good, who sits above and in all of this. It's, it, it begins with the three cycles of dialogue where Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, well, each of them suggest to Job some things that are theological. And we will find, surprisingly, that much of what they suggest is theologically accurate. These guys aren't heretics. They're not coming with, you know what, if you would bow down to Baal, right? These guys aren't coming with, if you would just meditate on your inner being, and try to reach nirvana. They're not coming with heresies or falsehoods. They're coming with a similar view on who God is and the sinful nature of every human being. So they come with genuine, and if you, as we will read eventually, each of their uh, particular uh, arguments, you will hear theology that you believe is accurate, but misapplied. You have three cycles of Eliphaz, who speaks kindly, but can be insensitive and superficial in terms of his explanation of what's going on. And then Job will respond. That's chapter 4 and 5, Eliphaz. Job responds in 6 and 7. Then Bildad will speak, and he's a little more harsh. He's a little more binary. He's a little more black and white about everything, and he's a little bit peeved at Job. And Job will respond to him in uh, chapters 9 and 10. And then Zophar will speak, and it's like we get increasingly younger and increasingly more angry. And Zophar is just angry and accusatory in chapter 11. And basically, more or less, says, Job, if you don't confess your sin, it's going to get worse. And then Job responds to him in chapters 12 and 14. And then you have a repeat of this. Eliphaz speaks again in chapter 15. Job replies to him in 16 and 17. Bildad speaks again and encourages him to realize that his path is leading to hell, right? Chapter 18, Job replies to him in chapter 19. Zophar speaks again. Judgment comes to the wicked and he's pointing his finger at Job. Chapter 20 and Job replies, chapter 21. And then a third cycle, and the third cycle for whatever reason, maybe Zophar, who's the youngest and the angriest, maybe he's just gone. He just gives up on Job. But just Eliphaz speaks, Job replies, Bildad speaks, and Job replies. And then you enter into a number of monologues until God actually shows up and speaks into all of this. 
The reason why I introduced that is because today the topic is Job's friends and the introduction of Job's friends and really the concept of genuine friendship. Not kind of friendship as you think about it in terms of having some social connection to someone or having a number of followers on your Instagram, right? Or, or having friends. I think I have like a thousand friends on my Facebook page. Most of them, I'm not even sure who they are, right? Just have friends. Like we just talk about friends that way. And as one Old Testament scholar put it, our Western modern concept of friends is a pale comparison to the Old Testament meaning of the word friend. So when, when, when the scriptures speak in Exodus that Moses spoke with God as a friend speaks to a friend, it means that there was this covenant loyalty, this faithfulness, this connectedness, this I would never turn my back on you and I will always be there for you. We think of that in terms of our closest, our dearest, our most significant friendships, but in the Old Testament, that is just the concept of friend. So that you have Proverbs like Proverbs 18.24, a man of many companions. You can insert Facebook friends, right? Followers. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend, and here's the word that is underlined, there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. The question is, how should friends respond in the midst of a friend, a brother, a sister, someone that they cherish and care for in this life? How should they respond in light of their suffering? And I think as we look at an introduction to Job's friends this morning, it's really about taking a look from a perspective of ministry, of counseling, of one anothering, of caring for one another, as a friend should care for a friend. We'll see some good things that his friends do. And then we'll also discuss some things that are very poor and the things that they don't do so well. The, the outline is simple. It'll be their ministry of presence. That's in uh, verse 11. Then there's a ministry of sympathy. That's in verses 12 and 13. And then we're adding in the unministry of words. I was trying to think of uh, what's, a, what's an antonym of ministry, right? The discouragement of words, maybe? But I thought unministry captures the idea that they were doing well, they were doing well, and now they're not doing so well. And, uh, and we'll discuss that as we go along. But could you look at this passage with me and let me read it and pray and let's start to unpack um, this introduction to Job's good friends. Starting in verse 11 of Job 2. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuite, uh, and Zophar, the Namanite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and to comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, even as we look to the scriptures now, we ask that you would give us insight into how to minister to one another well. And then you would also give us insight in terms of what it means that Christ is our friend. Not, not just that, that he is for us, he certainly is, but that, that he understands, he sits beside and with us. He takes us through the dark, um, the dark moments of the soul 
and has never forsaken or abandoned us. And I pray that that reality would just not just ring true in a theoretical sense, but that when we do, and may Job remind us constantly that we will encounter difficulty and suffering in this life, that we could turn to you because our God is sympathetic. He knows, and he is with us, and he is good. Give us a perspective of eternity, Lord, which is the only reason why Job is able to keep his sanity. Give us a perspective of eternal life and eternal being with you and that this world is temporary and that whatever difficulties, sins, struggles we have in this world, we must leave it in the realm of this world. It's temporary nature. It is not meant to be eternity. And may we not make anything in this world have the weight of eternal significance. But hold it lightly and let you lead us in what should be and what will be because you are sovereign, wise, and good. So we commit our way to you, Lord, and we ask that you might teach us something about how to minister better to one another as we look at Job's friends and the things, the wonderful things that they did well, and then the warning of some of the things that they did not so well. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look at this introduction, this intro to Job's friends, we begin then in verse 11 with the ministry of presence. This is something that that we often talk about even amongst our members, that if we are going to one another, if we're going to care for each other, if we're going to care for someone outside of the realm of my selfish concern, myself, you know, the, the triumvirate, me, myself, and I, and then by extension, me, myself, and ours. My immediate family, you know, my boyfriend, my girlfriend, you know, my my wife, my husband, whatever it is, it is hard for us to step outside of the self-centeredness of wanting everything simply for ourselves. There is a challenge and a price to be paid if we are to be good friends, if we are to care for one another. And so we talk about that often in terms of our membership, and we speak about a ministry of presence, of actually being there. You guys realize this is, this is part of the reason why when you get to Hebrews, it talks about the necessity of us gathering together and not forsaking the assembling together as become the habit of some already during the book of Hebrews. Why, why is the church gathering so important? Because if you don't go, God's going to strike you down? No. It's because this is where we meet. This is where ministry can take place. This is where if you are praying for someone, or you're worried about someone, or you're just thankful about someone, this is the place that you connect to them. This is the place where we lift up our voices together as a congregation, as God's people. And, and we're too busy because of, what, sports? Because of entertainments? Because of different things that are significant? Right? And, and I'm not diminishing those. Those might be blessed things. But if, if those things begin to crowd out the ministry of presence, then you do not even begin with ministry. Presence is in itself a ministry. And it's something that Job's friends do particularly well. Look at verse 11. Now when Job's three friends heard of all the, this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, Zophar the Namanite. They all came. These are unique friends 
who demonstrate a ministry of presence. Let me first talk about their uniqueness, because I think there's some things that we need to understand. It's not to say that Job had no other friends, okay? It's not, we don't read this and go, oh, Job and his only three friends. Oh, good, I'm glad they came, because nobody else liked Job anyway, right? He probably had tons of friends. He was the greatest man in the East, and there was probably some people that stuck around because he's so rich and powerful, and others that were close friends, people that he ministered to. He seemed, in every way in chapter 1, to be the kind of character that would care for people, and as a result, many probably loved him. Not just leaned on him, but loved him. But of those, these are three unique friends. They are unique in the sense, one, that they are not merely companions or associates. They're individuals that, that, that do, as Proverbs 18.24 says, they're friends that will stick closer than a brother. I said that the, the, the Hebrew concept of friend is so much stronger in the Old Testament. And you see it laid out in the way that, that people speak of it. Job himself, in chapter 6.14, he will say, He who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. Job is saying, listen, if you're the kind of individual that will call someone a friend but withhold kindness, it's questionable if you, it's questionable whether or not you understand who God is and whether or not you walk in true worship of Him. It's connected. In the words of Jesus, He would say something more like the vertical is connected to the horizontal. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, might, and strength and love others as yourself. That these are interconnected things that relationship with one kind of necessitates a relationship of the other. So, so the friendship bonds of loyalty are significant in the Old Testament. I'll give you an interesting other example in 2 Samuel 16. You guys might not remember this story, and that's okay. But remember Absalom, David's son, has kind of taken over, right? The kingdom, and David is on the run. And then Hushai, one of David's closest advisors, chooses to be a double agent, and he's going to put his life on the line. But he is going to stay and pretend to be for Absalom, right? And it would be an instrumental and key a role that will help David come back to the throne and for Absalom to be toppled. But, but when this happens, in 2 Samuel 16, Hushai says to Absalom, long live the king, long live the king. And then this is what Absalom says to Hushai. Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why didn't you not go out with your friend? His immediate instinct is to understand, by definition, if, if you are David's friend, Where's your loyalty? That's weird, right? So he suspects him initially, and nevertheless, he, he believes him later. But at least initially, even Absalom recognizes that friendship means more than simply fair-weather fan. These three friends were friends of Job. They cared for him. And each of them came from his own place. Do you notice that phrase? And they come from different places, and it's, it's hard to know exactly where to pinpoint them. We have some clues, but they're not necessarily that helpful. Eliphaz, the Temanite, he's first, and he is probably the oldest. And the reason why is he's always first to speak in all of the dialogues. And towards the end of the book, when God speaks to all of them, he speaks to Eliphaz and says, I am angry with you, Eliphaz, and your two friends. Suggesting that he's the oldest, and he is... Potentially the wisest, but he is the one that would represent the other two. His name means L is fine gold. Doesn't really help us with anything, just that, you know, got a cool name. Um, 
He's from, he's, he's from Teman, because he's a Temanite. And Teman is, a, is an ancient town of Edom. And Edom was renowned for its wisdom. So Jeremiah 49.7 says, Is wisdom no more in Teman? Right? Same town. But it's not to say that he came that much later, but maybe that this is an ancient town. That's all we know about him. That we should suggest from this that he is, he is you know, rich and popular and, you know, and powerful. That he is from this, this ancient city and well known from there. That he is the wisest amongst the, the, the three friends that have come, the oldest among them. And that he, he's connected with at least an area that is renowned for its wisdom. Then there's a second, Bildad the Shuai. And Bildad, the name means Bel has loved. And it could be used in a pagan sense to talk about a Baal. But Baal, as a name, is a pagan god. But the name itself, the word itself, just means Lord. And so it could be that, that he is a follower of Yahweh Lord, and his name is Bel is Lord, or Lord is, has loved. Lord has loved, right? That could be his name. He's from Shua. He's a Shuite. And Shua was the name of one of Abraham's sons by his second wife, Keturah. Remember, after Sarah had died. Um, and he had more children with Keturah towards near the end of his life. And then after he has those kids, he sends them off towards the east. And that would make some sense in terms of, you know, um, Job being this great man in the east. And his friends are from different areas in the east, perhaps. But again, it's hard to know if that's the exact way to understand who this Bildad is. We just know he has a designation and something of a noble title. Then there's Zophar, the Namanite, right? Um, I already mentioned he's kind of the most angry of the three, right? Um, his, his name doesn't have like a, you know, God is something to it. His name, Zophar, literally means bird or can usually refers to the sound that birds make. So um, I think of him as Mr. Chirping. Right? And we, th we think about that, right? People tweeting or chirping, usually with some amount of vitriol, right? I mean, I, for some reason, it seems to, to fit this so far. He's from Nama, which is, which is the name of a daughter of one of Lamech's wives, uh, all the way back in Genesis 4.22. So there's connections, right? But it's hard to know if that became a city, a town. I mean, it's a city or town. That's where he comes from. But if that's connected to Lamech's wives or something else, I don't know. The point is, these are unique friends, but they are friends indeed. They probably share an equal stature as Job himself. These are all three of them probably rulers of their city, their town, their region. They're probably extremely wealthy, they're elite, they're powerful, and they're significantly considered probably to be wise men. All three of them come with some deep theological conviction. You read any one of their, their arguments in any of those chapters, and there's, there's stuff in there that you go, man, that is true, that is good. Just misapplied. They all of them share a, 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 an acumen for the greatness of God, and all of them recognize the sinfulness of humankind. So the problem is not theology, it's, it's application. And we'll see that very clearly as we look at each one. So these are unique friends, but they're also kind friends, right? We keep saying that their ministry of presence um, was indeed a ministry. And the second part of verse 11 says, they made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. Catch that phrase, they made an appointment together to come to him. These are friends, true friends, but they live far apart. It might have taken them weeks, maybe months 
to hear about the calamity of Job. Everything that we read in a matter of a few verses, everything that took place in a singular dark day in the life of Job, they would have had taken weeks, maybe months, to get that information. And once they received that information, they made an appointment together. The three of them said, hey, listen, we got to go. We got to go see Job. We got to find out what's going on. We got to support him. So they intended, they traveled together to go to sympathize for a person that they truly loved. This required planning, required thoughtful sacrifice. It required some amount of, uh, um, of difficulty um, in order to step in to a very difficult space in the life of one of their brothers. I think, that's, I think that's what we mean when we talk about a ministry of presence. It does. It requires you to kind of give up of some of your own freedoms, some of your own delights, some of your own like, you know, ability to kind of do what your own thing. It, it, you are sacrificing some of your comforts, some of the things that you'd like your life to be for the sake of others. These are the kind of friends that were Job's closest friends. They would, from afar, all of them, distant from each other, maybe months after hearing about what's happened to Job, they reach out to each other and go, we need to gather and then we need to collaborate and then we need to go look in on Job. It's the kind of fellowship, partnership, that you expect that we have in the body of Christ. This is what membership should look like in a local church. Healthy membership should look like you're connected to everyone else. And if one member of the body hurts, what does is, what is 1 Corinthians say? All of the members hurt. We share each other's joys and we rejoice with those that rejoice. We share each other's discomforts and pains and we weep with those that weep. We pray for each other. We encourage each other. And all the one another's of the New Testament, this is what we're talking about. This is the kind of friends we're talking about. They were kind friends. And that is exactly the kind of fellowship that is expected of New Testament believers. And that's why you ought to be part of a, of a church, right? And not just kind of hanging out, but an active member of a church. Because once you enter into that covenant, that's a promise that you are going to care for everyone else. And everyone else is going to try to care for you. They came specifically, they made an appointment to come together, to travel a great distance, to figure out where Job is. And they came specifically to do two things. It says to show him sympathy and to show him comfort. You notice that? They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. The word for sympathy, it's rooted in the, in the idea of shaking your head. You know, for the longest time when people text me and they put SMH, I had no idea what that meant. Santa Monica High School, right? <laughs> I don't know. What, what is it? What? Shake my head. That means shake my head. So all you 50-somethings right now, I taught you something, right? You didn't know that. But it means shake my head. The idea of this word comes from the idea of shaking your head. And I think the idea is that you shake your head or like you're just like you're just visibly, physically shaken in sympathy for what is taking place. It's an identification with the sufferer to, to say, man, I can't believe this. I can't believe this is where we are. I can't believe this is what has happened to you, right? It's a physical display of their care and their desire to share the burden of another, to walk through that experience together with them. That's what sympathy is meant to be, at least in that word. It means to share their sorrow, to share their pain. 
And to be able to offer up nothing else but just kind of like, I just can't believe it. Kind of a moment. The, the next word, comfort, is an interesting word because in, in a different context, this word can be used to speak of a change of mind or even repentance. So immediately you sense that comfort is not simply, right, um, a passive kind of application of, of mercy. This is an active, right, response. Uh, the, word, uh, the, the Hebrew word for comfort here means that you're trying to seek a change, that you're trying to encourage or change someone's heart in terms of their status because of their broken heart. You're, you're trying to do something, say something, and your entire desire in comforting them is to bring them to the place of knowing that God is still God and eternity is still ahead of us. Let's not, let's not be overwhelmed by the sorrows and the struggles of this life. Let's sorrow, let's grieve, but let's know that there's something deeper, greater, and that's more eternal. That's what it means to comfort. And they came with an intention to share his pain, to speak into the darkness of his soul. They came to care for him, right? That's what the ministry of presence looks like. I think there's a direct application for us in terms of how to be that kind of friend, how to be that kind of fellowship, how to be that kind of church, where we are kind to one another, that we are stepping into that difficult space, that we make pains to come together, to sympathize, to bring comfort. That's that's what the ministry of presence literally means. And the friends of Job do that extremely well. We have to hang on to that because it's easy to lose that in light of sometimes the harsh things that they say. But come on, let's be honest. Is that not you, right, with your loved ones? That you love them, you care for them with your roommates, you care for them, you're kind to them, and then every once in a while you say some harsh things to them, right? This is Job's friends. Understandably flawed, but they did some things right, and it was a ministry of presence, right? Oh, oh I was supposed to show you that, but we already saw that, right? <laughs> a ministry of presence, then a ministry of sympathy, Right? So now this is more of that support, not merely being there, but now actively participating in what is taking place. And it begins in verse 12. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. So the first thing they do is they see Job's plight. I mean, they actually see it. And if you'll raise your eyes a few verses to verses 7 and 8 of Job 2, will remind you of what it is they are seeing. There it says that Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. And we describe not just the the immensity of that pain and the diabolical nature of that physical affliction, that it wasn't like some normal disease, easily identifiable, but it was everywhere. There was no comfort. It was constant and it was 24 hours. And that he felt a need to try to find some some temporary relief by scraping at his boils with a broken piece of pottery. And all the while, finding no real relief, he sat in the ashes. And we said that doesn't mean that he just found some ashes and decided to just sit there. He sat in what is a pile of rubbish. He sits outside the city in where they would throw all the rubbish and the rubbish would be burned. That's where he's sitting, separate from all the people because they can't, they can't explain what's going on with him physically, but clearly something is, 
there's some crazy illness that he is afflicted with. And so like a leper, he needs to be outside the city. He needs to be detached from people. So he is separated, sitting on the rubbish heap, isolation, because he is unclean. And as they, they probably had to come into the city and ask around, and when they are instructed to go out to the ash heaps, the garbage area, they see him, and they see him from a distance. And they can't recognize him. Doesn't mean they don't know it's him. They know it's him. It means that there's something about his physical affect that, that is so different. And if you've ever had to visit a friend or a loved one in the hospital as they're reaching the end, you know exactly what that looks like. It looks like them, but it kind of doesn't look like them. Right? Maybe they're emaciated. Maybe they're just pale there's something about them where the vibrancy of what you remember them to look like is kind of dissipated. They're, they're kind of gone. They're fading. And this is what it's describing. This is what they see. They have come to see Job and to encourage him. And they have walked in on a physically altered, unbearably painful, suffering friend who as far as they could tell is nearing his death. This is Job's plight, and this is part of their ministry of sympathy. They've come for this, right? And then in the second part of verse 12, they come to share Job's pain. It says, and they raised their voices and wept. They tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. Again, they, they do what is right here. They come to share in Job's pain. Now, not, not to kind of witness it from a distance and go, oh, man, man, he doesn't look good. No, he doesn't look good. All right. Hey, Job, we got to get going. Good to see you, man. You know, hang in there, buddy, right? They come to share in that pain. They raise their voices. It literally says that they, they increase, right? They increase their noise. They see it, and they just literally start crying out in pain. They're wailing, right? They can't believe it. And so their voices lift up what they feel in their souls and their hearts for this person that they love they are crying out, and it says they wept, and that word for wept is similarly not, not a term for just crying quietly, right? It's not just the word for tears. It's the kind of crying that we would describe in our English as wailing. It's the crying that demands the use of your mouth as well as the tears of your eyes, and it means that they immediately saw that he looked so different and was in such pain. It wasn't just everything that he had lost, and he had lost so much, but it is what he was going through even now. And they, it just overwhelmed them. And the emotion of it raised their voices and their tears flow. And they cried out. They probably literally yelled out the anguish that they, they felt for their friend and with their friend. And then they tore their robes. And we already talked about that as a sign of deep anguish and humiliation. And then they sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. This is an interesting phrase, and, and we've already encountered the idea of dust. Um, Job has already done this, and you wonder, well, why in the Old Testament are they so enamored with dust, right? It's because dust is the constant reminder of our mortality and impending death. This is what God said in Genesis 3.19. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust and to dust you shall return. 
So one of the reasons why dust became basically a sign of mourning uh, for the Old Testament saints is because it represented everything that they knew theologically to be true. That in their sinfulness, this was part of the pain of their mortality. This is part of the, re- the, the reminder of their impending death. Every single human was going to die. The question is just a matter of how we're going to do it. Is it a tragedy that human beings die? Absolutely. But was there a chance that Job's kids would never die? That his servants would not die? That all these human beings that lost their lives, is there a chance that they would have never died? Absolutely not. That's come dust is a reminder of what is lost and slipping away because we are mortal. And in this case, with Job, there was so much death. Not just seven sons and three daughters, which is enough to pain a human being for all the rest of their lives. But think about the numerous servants, all the memories, all the good things that they had experienced. These friends came in a ministry of presence, yes, but to be there and to sympathize, to join in with Job's experience of excruciating pain. They came to support and to share his sorrow, to understand, at least to some degree, right, his pain and his loss. They came because Job was going through this and they felt the need to be connected with that. There's something excellent about that ministry of sympathy. They're literally there to share Job's pain. There's, I mean, there's endless application for us in that. To not remain detached from those that are struggling, but to enter into that space, to care for them as Christ cares for us. Because that's the way that God steps into our space. That's what the Savior, that's what the Messiah does. He walks the life of human weakness, except without sin. And that's why he is able to sympathize with us, right? According to Hebrews 4, that's why he's a sympathetic high priest. And not a high priest that says, well, I never had that struggle with sin, so I don't know what your problem is, but I'm here to just offer some sacrifice. But instead, he understands. He knows every weakness, He's gone through every physical limitation. He just never gave in to sin. That's sympathy, right? He's a ministry of sympathy. So they see Job's plight, they share Job's pain, and then they, jo- they join in Job's loneliness. Now this might sound weird to you that we're talking about it in terms of loneliness, um, but look at verse 13. They sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Seven days and seven nights. Now, now there's some cause to understand this, right? There's some explanation for this because it was, uh, it was um, a common thing in the Old Testament um, for there to be a period when, of seven days of mourning um, for the dead. So someone significant has passed away, then the, then the nation might enter into a period of seven days of mourning, like in 1 Samuel 31, right? That's kind of a common thing in the Old Testament. So, so maybe that was a tradition, seven days of mourning. That makes sense. But it's not just seven days of mourning. It's seven days of shut your mouth, I have nothing to say, and I'll suffer here next to you. Why? Because they saw that his suffering was great. So at least for those seven days, they recognized that there's nothing they could say or do that could win him to a brighter moment. They were were just there. It was presence and, and sympathy, and that's all they could offer for those seven days. They were just there, right? 
And it was his suffering that was great. Because as much as they're trying to join in emotionally and supporting him, there is always that recognition that it's not their suffering. They might have known Job's kids. They might have thought highly of his servants. But nevertheless, this is Job's pain. And that's the loneliness of certain sufferings that are so deep. They saw that his suffering is an individual and specific suffering that they could only come into a little bit. And that suffering was very great. So they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. Um, I remember a friend telling me that uh, they can't hardly remember anyone that came to their wedding, but they can't forget every person that came to their mom's funeral. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. And there's something true about that, right? Because there's, there's something about, we're just celebrating, we're having a good time, and it's kind of all about us anyway, right? On your wedding day, that it's like, hey, were you there? If you weren't, then, you know, you missed a good time, you know? It's like, and it's okay. But when it's, when it's morning, when it's um, you're entering into that, that period of sadness, you remember the kindness of people in their ministry of presence, and their ministry of sympathy. And, and it, it drives deeper um, that sense that we are here for each other. But in the midst of that, there's still a very significant sense of loneliness, right? Because even, even if his friends sit with him for seven days and seven nights, he knows full well that they cannot actually experience fully the, the suffering that he's experienced. They know full well that they're here to support him but even if they sat with him, beside him, and then they all died together one day, years later, right, sitting in the ash heap, they still had not experienced fully the suffering that Job himself has experienced alone. That's how suffering is. And in Job's case, it wasn't just physical. It was emotional. It was spiritual. It was mental. And these friends came to support him and to sympathize with him. They did. But there's always a sense, no matter what, that, the, the greater the suffering, there's a sense that each of us experiences that. Even if we experience the same loss, we experience it a little bit differently. There's a very inwardness, a very loneliness with suffering. Something about this deepest sorrow um, that is so personal, it always feels like it's, it's just by ourselves right? I think that's kind of the nature of sin, separation, and suffering. It just feels like you're alone, even when others are trying to sympathize with you. And you guys know, I'm saying stuff that many of you, if you've experienced that, you guys understand what we're saying. But the point of good friendships, of good ministry of sympathy, is they've come to at least join in, attach themselves to that loneliness, to at least be there, if not physically, at least in support, in caring for them. And so far, so good. So good, right? Seven days, this is probably the best that Job has felt in a a series of months. His last dialogue with anybody has been his wife, and she had given up hope. She's probably moved back with, with her family and said, listen, I got nothing for you. I think all you have is to just finally curse God and let him take your life and be done with this world. She had lost hope. But here is his friends. Without a word, right? 
present, sympathetic, and ministering to him. Beautiful picture. And then everything goes wrong, right? And then the unministry of words. The discouragement of words? I don't know. Maybe I probably could have thought of something else. It was worse, the options I had until 10 p.m. last night. So just so you know, right? <laughs> unministry is probably the best that we could have, right? There is, a, there is literally, oops. Oh, what happened? We cut out. That's all right. You'll remember it's the unministry. Oh, there you go. The unministry of words, right? From this point on, the book of Job was shift to a number of poetic dialogues and then monologues. And it will begin in chapter three that we'll look at next week. It'll begin with Job really simply saying that he regrets being born. He regrets living. And as a response to that, Eliphaz is the first to speak. And let me give you an overview of Eliphaz, Bildan, and Zophar's first speech to Job in that first cycle of dialogues. Eliphaz speaks, and he, he has a kindness to him. He tries to speak nice to him, but some of his things are superficial. He's in chapters 4 and 5, but here's chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. Eliphaz says to Job, remember Job had just said, I wish I had never been born. That's all I'm saying, right? And he says this, Remember who that was innocent ever perished, or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow inequity and sow trouble reap the same. Now this is true, right? This is a true statement. But probably not helpful to Job at this moment. And then look at further in Job chapter 5, verses 18 to 19, he continues, and he just encourages him to just repent. He says, for he, meaning God, God wounds, but he also binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. He will deliver you from six troubles and seven, no evil shall touch you. He is encouraging Job, Job, innocents don't suffer. So he's implying in a kind of way, if you would just repent, God's the kind of God that will heal you up. Are these, are these statements true? Absolutely. Is it applicable to Job? Absolutely not. And that's where the insensitivity and the superficial nature of knowing something does not translate to ministering something. Bildad steps in. He's a little more harsh. Like I said, he's binary and he's a little peeved at Job. And he says this in Job chapter 8, verses 3 to 4. He says, Job, does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert the right? Listen now. If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. You hear his statement? If your kids are sinners, that's why things like this happen. I cannot imagine the harshness of a statement like that. Is, that, is that on its face? Is that true? Yes, but so black and white, so binary, so like, you know, probably the reason why your kids were killed was because God killed them because they had sin. Nothing in the text suggests that they were sinners. Nothing in the text suggests that they were wicked or that Job was not a good father to them in raising them to the things of the Lord. And here is Bildad suggesting, well... If he had done a little better job, or maybe he's suggesting, if they weren't sinners, these things don't happen to people that aren't sinners. This is the consequence of sin. He says to Job in chapter 8, verses 6 and 7, 
If you are pure, pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And though your beginning was small, your latter days will be great. He is saying, Job, if you would turn to him, unlike your children, maybe there's still hope for you. That's Bildad speaking. So far. See, and we said we start with the eldest, the most kind, the kind of the black and white, or more harsh, and then Zophar, who is a little bit more accusatory. Zophar speaks in his cycle, in Job chapter 11, verse 4 to 6, he says, Job, you say, my doctrine is pure and I'm clean in God's eyes, but oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you, and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom, for he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Is that true? That is absolutely true. We should say that. I am doing better than I could ever deserve because God is gracious. But is this the right ministry? To, this is an unministry to Job, right? Job, I know you lost all your children, all your property, all your hope is lost. Your wife has moved back with your in-laws because she's lost hope in any kind of future and you're broken out in sores and you're in constant pain. You get no rest, etc. But I want you to know that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Theologically true and spiritually absolutely unhelpful at that moment. Let me ask you, does this resonate with you as being a bad counselor? It resonates with me. I think I've given bad counsel similar to this all the time because I think I know a thing and because that thing is true, then it could be applicable at any point, right? It doesn't matter if it's a round hole. I got this square peg of theology. I'm going to bam, bam, bam. I'm going to smash it in and hopefully that will serve you well. He goes on to say in chapter 11, verses 14 to 15, if inequity is in your hand, put it far away and let not injustice dwell in your, in their, in your tents. Surely then... You will lift up your face without blemish and you will secure, you'll be secure and will not fear. And he's saying, Job, you need to repent of your unbelief. And Job's reply to all these men is, as far as I know, I haven't done anything sinful. As far as I know, the children weren't evil. They love the Lord. As far as I know, right, and I'm being sincere with you, I believe in the Lord and I've turned to him countlessly. I recognize my sinfulness. I trust in him. And here are his counselors. A discouragement of words. And in the end, by the time we get to the end of the book of Job, fast forward all the way to Job 42, verse 7 and 9, the Lord speaks to these friends. And listen to his, reply, his, his response to them. Job 42, starting in verse 7. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have, not spoken, you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namanite went and did what the Lord had told them and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Two times the Lord says it this way, you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. You have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Does it occur to you that you could speak truth, but not on behalf of the Lord in a way that's offensive 
personally to him. Because they are, you'll see, some of their theology is rich and helpful, and some of their phrasing, you might go, oh, dude, I like that. That's a good way to say something about God's righteousness, about his holiness, about, about you know, his justice in the world, his power, etc. They say good things that are theologically accurate, but if you misapply them, God is saying, it's like you're speaking of me, something that is not true. You can be right and speak unrighteously. You can be true and not represent our true God well. And that is where these guys have gone astray. I mean, there's so much to say about that, and I'm sure we'll uncover more as we go. But let me, let me just give you a few just kind of words from Scripture that speak of words. Jesus says, right, what goes into your mouth, right, in Mark 7, doesn't defile you because that's eliminated biologically. He says, what defiles you is what comes out of your mouth. He says, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. These evil things come from within and they defile a person. Matthew 12, 34, Jesus says, out of the abundance of your heart, the mouth speaks. Proverbs 18, 2 says, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding. He's not interested in hearing you, only in expressing his opinion. And in James 3, which is precious to me, not only because it speaks of words, but it speaks of trying to be a teacher. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, meaning he's a complete man. He's finished in his maturity, able also to bridle his whole body. And then later on in verse 8, it says, But no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. That is, that is the friends of Job to a T. They know stuff. They want to teach but we need to be careful when we know stuff. When we think we know something, we are the most dangerous in terms of our capacity to unminister. See? See why that's a good word? To unminister. I would say this last thing. This is a good article, uh, ACBC article, uh, by Brad Brandt. Apparently he did a whole thing on the poor counsel of, of the friends of Job. And in it, he just tries to highlight some of the ways that they give counsel that's not helpful, right? And he says a bunch of stuff. He, he says things like, you know, some things that we see is that they speak true things, but they fail to get all the facts. And he says, don't we often do that as biblical counselors? His, his, another one, he says, they assume that there has to be sin when there wasn't. This must be exactly the consequence directly of sin, all right? But it's not. They preached at Job, instead of ministering truth to him. They really didn't listen. They heard words, they misunderstood, and they ran with him. They only cared about their argument. They didn't care about hearing him out. They were black and white thinkers, is another one. They had no room for gray areas. They, all there was is this is either this or this is that, and that's all there was, right? They had an inadequate view of suffering. They failed to give Job what he needed, which was pity and hope. They said true things, but in the wrong context, things that didn't help. They presumed that they understood what was happening in Job's life. They presumed, but they didn't really understand. And there are so many. 
But you see, all of these things are a consequence of good intentions gone wrong. And it's a constant reminder to us that it is not just our knowledge, but then it's our knowledge and our connectedness to the Lord. And what grounds us ultimately is remembering who Christ is for us. He should have crushed us. You know that moment where you confess your sin and you turn your life to him? As you're confessing your sin, it should have dawned on your soul that Christ, the Lord, he should have just crushed me. Like, like Peter, right? When he's called from the boat and he says, Lord, you should depart from me. I'm a sinful man. There's no reason you should be connected with a fool like me. I'm a decent guy. I go to the synagogue, right? I give money. I give alms to the poor. I'm a decent follower of God, but you are special and you shouldn't be with me. That's what confession of sins feels like. And when we live in that gospel truth, when we recognize our sinfulness, and we're not trying to figure it out with our own minds or clever thinking or philosophies, all we know is I'm a sinner and I deserve eternal death and Christ should crush me. And then we turn to him, believing that he could heal us. And isn't it interesting that Isaiah, as part of its illustration of his atonement on our behalf, he uses the idea of healing and says, by his stripes, we are healed. See, it's not just that he's willing to take our place in death. He is. But he does it because he cares for us. And anything that we do by way of ministry should represent the same spirit of Christ, who is the wonderful counselor. He is good at what he does, not because he just slams you with the truth, but because he loves you and he will do something about his love for you. That is the beauty of the gospel. And it just astounds me as you look at everything that will take place in the book of Job, how much the gospel does apply to that, how Christ is the suffering servant way beyond anything that Job might ever imagine but that how Christ also exemplifies the kind of ministry that a true friend really gives, that he would live, that he would die in our place. And without punching us in the face or giving us the big, I told you so, he loves on us in ways that is impossible for us to ever deserve. And that is our Savior, and that is the gospel, and that is what we transition to as we celebrate our time remembering the Lord's table.